All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family this morning. Thank you for always making us aware of the truth, Father. Thank you for never holding back, for it is by the very sting of truth at times that it sets us free from bondage. Father, we're so grateful for all that you do in our lives, for always revealing said truth to us in a timely manner so that we can understand it and, of course, be delivered by it to bring glory to you. Father, we pray for those in our congregation that are ill this morning, that you heal them and return them back to this fold. Your will be done. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that before it's too late they be humbled and repent and gain saving faith. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work to make all of this a reality and possible in our lives. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 25 of The Lord is Our Confidence. I want to begin with a quote uh, that I received um, via email regarding the uh, blog, this week's blog, titled The Entertainment Trap. So I hope you all had the opportunity to read that blog. Again, it was titled The Entertainment Trap, and I received this email. As a result, this trap, quote, this trap, especially the Hollywood glamour of its red carpet appeal to millions in the world that we all fall prey to, indeed is an ugly sewer pipe. The big and small screens are a dangerous lure. With more doctrine in our souls, it hurts and doesn't feel right when absorbed the Spirit's conviction at work in our hearts for the good as we pull away from this snare with better time spent investing in His Word and mission. Slowly getting hooked and sucked into this took many years. Its truest meaning is becoming more apparent. The more we study truth, this diversion is a foul and disgusting stench to our souls as we ease out of it, and all for the better. Thanks again, Pastor Jim Merchant. The reason I mention his name is that, are you, where is Jim? Is he here? Oh, he's he's doing prep school? How old is Jim now? 70, right? 72. So Jim is surprisingly 72 years old. Don't let his spryness fool you. Um, Go to Proverbs 20, verse 29. That's no spring chicken. 72. Some of you are like, hey, hey, no. (laughs) The Bible has to say, has something to say about people with gray hair. I don't know what that means for me. Proverbs 20, verse 29. Did I not say it? Oh, Proverbs 20, verse 29. The glory of young men is in their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. Hmm. The glory of young men is in their strength. The honor of old men is their gray hair. Stripes that wound and scour away evil and strokes reach the innermost parts. 
So it's a wise man willing to share his wisdom with me, as I just read, and now with you all, that has admitted taking his own stripes. 72 years old, and what did you hear from this man? That he's taking his own stripes, as he wrote, understanding uh, the lure of the God of this world and his agencies, if you want to call them that. So even recently, he admits such things, especially even daily. So you all should listen when he speaks of such things, not because I'm saying it, but because that's what the Bible says. Older people, especially those with the Word of God in their soul, have a lot of wisdom. There's something to behold. And so when someone of the age of 72 who's been with this ministry for a long time reads that blog and has that to say, you should listen. It's worth your time. Likewise, you should listen to the one endowed with the God-given right to rebuke and exhort you, namely your pastor, who this particular gray-haired man is very grateful to. Just a little more insight into this passage up here on the board. Barnes on Proverbs 20, verse 30. The open sores of wounds left by the scourge, uncleaning, or excuse me, unclean and foul as they seem, are yet a cleansing, purifying process for evil. So also are the stripes that reach the inward parts of the belly. For example, the sharp reproofs, the stings of conscience, which penetrate where no scourge can reach into the inner life of man. And then he closes with this thought. Chastisement, whatever be its nature, must be real. The scourge must leave its mark. The reproof must go deep. I think that's one of the reasons he has me write a blog. It's because it allows me um, a, a, a more focused cut, if you would, on certain subjects. That one has that entertainment thing, the media thing, has come up time and again from the pulpit. But it really came in full force in that blog called The Entertainment Trap. And so if you've been reading them and paying attention, like the 72-year-old man I just read from, the cuts go deep. And there's no escape from the actual truth of the matter. And so as Barnes says up here in the board, the reproof must go deep. Again, look at Proverbs 20, verse 29. 20, 29. The glory of young men is in their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. Stripes that wound scour away evil, and strokes reach the innermost parts. So I'm just sharing here, but the longer I live, the more I understand why God chose me personally to lead this particular congregation. In part, and I have no problem saying this, uh, it's because most of you are experts at lawyering. And I'm a really good lawyer because I'm smart and I'm stupid at the same time. 
which means I've failed in a multitude of ways. And I understand how the human mind works. And I understand how uh, disgusting it can be in its lawyering. And so I'm convinced of it after a decade plus now. He chose me with my own skill set because you all are experts at lawyering. <laughs> Some of you are puffed up from years of so-called doctrinal Christianity. Other of you are still riding the religious roller coaster. And when you're, you know, quote, doing well, it's difficult to get through to you. And still others of you just flat out think you know more than you really do. Which is why you talk more than you listen and miss the points the Spirit's making. This last category of person is the one that when you drive home with them after service, they spend their time recapping the lesson at the expense of others. That's how you know who I'm talking about. Some of you are like, yep, that's my spouse. Or, yep, that's the person who rides shotgun with me. Or the person driving the car. They recap the lesson at the expense of others. You know, because they don't need adjustment, because they know everything. You know that person? Some of you look really guilty, so maybe it's you. I'm just saying. These people believe they are expert at explaining things from an arrogant posture, how everyone else is disoriented to truth. When all along, it is they, in their arrogance, that needs to truly understand the likes of Christ's disdain for hypocrisy. Go to Luke 6.39. Luke 6.39. In that posture that they take, that arrogant posture, it's them. They've just put themselves in full force on the chopping block by proving themselves arrogant and even hypocrites. And among all things, as we've learned, Christ disdains has a great distaste for hypocrisy. Luke 6.39 And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. In other words, there's an order of events here. We'll get back to that in a moment. But there's an order of events here. Take the thing out of your own eye so that you can actually see clearly. If you carpool with or even live with this last category of person here at NCC, my heartfelt condolences. In all fairness, though, we all do it. 
It's just easier sometimes to point, point fingers, isn't it? You can say it, it's true. And that's what we do. It's just easier to point fingers. And so we pontificate on our drives home. And very often, you know, we become a ship of fools. Yeah, yeah, that person over there is an idiot. Oh, that person's, you know, they're, they're, just, they're just decrepit. Low. Low. In any case, I say thank you to the man I call Coach for always encouraging me and now the congregation. We have to change gears now. We must be on our way back to our mainstream series. The Lord is our confidence. Tammy and I are heading out to Colorado Springs this week, so this is our last installment of this series for now, as I believe the Spirit's got a multi-part special lined up for you, right? Yeah. We began Thursday with a, quote, funny question. That question was, when's the last time you ever heard someone say aloud, call me ugly to my face? Like, who's ever... <laughs> Who's ever given you that opportunity? Hey, call me ugly to my face. Like, never. That's, that's not a typical question you get asked. But what if you really are ugly in that moment? Don't you want to know? I mean, this is, this is going to sound silly, but I, I bet you this is true. If you were to go out in public with a booger on your face, would you want to know? In fact, you'd be terribly angry at any friend that didn't tell you. Fair enough? You let me go out like that? It's been right here the whole time. You'd be angry, correct? Then why do you not have well, why not have a good friend tell you when you have a spiritual booger on your face? Why do you have no problem with that? Why do people have no problem? Oh my God, God forbid you have a booger on your face. Oh my, I'm going to be so embarrassed, and I'm going to be so upset and ashamed. But you can have a spiritual booger on your face, and you don't care. Hmm. Which means more to you? Appearing like a Hollywood idol or like Jesus? You already answered it when you giggled, because you know the truth. Most of you care more about how you look in public than how you look spiritually. So would you rather your so-called friends lie to your face then? Oh, no, you don't have a spiritual booger on your face. The question on the table up here on the board is, does the truth scare you that much? I mean, about yourself. Because isn't that what we're really after? We just want to know, like David, Lord, tell me. Show me my heart. Show me my attitude. Show me my motivation. Show me my fruit. Because I tend to blab a lot at the gums, and yet my fruit doesn't measure up to the things I proclaim to be. Show me my way. This whole series we're on, digs deep down and stings us, the way Barnes commented on Proverbs 20, 30. 
the reproof must go deep. The reproof must go deep. It's where all the good work is done. Hebrews 4.12 cuts right to the marrow. The word of truth cuts right to the topic, right to the bone. That's where all the good work happens. The reproof must go deep. And like that passage stated, it's a very good thing to be wounded by the truth because it is at the end of this process that we are granted freedom. So, when we dig deep into our own attitudes and motivations, what we find is that not only do we lack, now concentrate, not only do we lack confidence in the Lord, in other words, our present estate isn't just lacking. Not only do we look in the mirror and say, okay, in this moment in time, take a snapshot, I'm lacking. Not only is that true, but we are very much engaged in activities and lifestyles that pursue increased confidence in the flesh. So not only does a snapshot say we lack, but also the activity and the lifestyle. If we're honest, we pursue increased confidence in our flesh. And some of you might be saying, I don't know, I just don't see it in myself. So let me ask you a question if you don't believe me. When you hang around in your comfy clothes at home, what do they look like? Probably like maybe some, you know, comfortable shorts or something, like an old, you know, a comfortable t-shirt, maybe some gym pants and some nice socks and slippers and what have you, and you know, whatever. In my case, I wear like a little beanie hat because my head gets cold. So that's what you do when you're comfortable, right? So why do you spend so much time, energy, and money on looking good? I mean, if that's how you're comfortable, why do you spend so much time, money, and energy on looking good? It has zero to do with spiritual health. Don't lie and say your skin-tight jeans make a difference to Jesus. That's a lie. I mean, in other words, if you're really comfortable in gym pants, why not just wear those? Is that a, that's a fair question, right? I mean, it's fair. Or why do you exhaust yourself emotionally? trying to vie for the friendship of those whom God prohibits you from befriending in the first place. Why are you so distraught? Why do you exhaust yourself emotionally to become friends with people that don't care about Jesus? Or why do you compete with family members regarding who's better or got better stuff? Again, we are very much engaged in activities and lifestyles that pursue increased confidence in our flesh. We're not, in other words, we're not just snapshot lacking. The Spirit never lets it go with that, does He? He says, no, 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 no. I want, to, I want you to look at your lifestyle. 
Because suppose you're able to take an eraser and go, and all that lacking was magically gone. Well, because of your lifestyle, it's going to reappear tomorrow. Because every day is like a rebirth of ungodliness. Because your lifestyle leads to it. You know what I'm saying? You can talk all you want, but the truth doesn't lie. It's funny because some of you, well, all of you, none of you, some of you didn't ask me personally to answer that opening question from Thursday, but I'm going to answer it anyways at no extra charge. <laughs> the truth scares you because you're ugly sometimes. There it is. The truth scares you because you're ugly sometimes. I'm not saying you're ugly all the times, but sometimes you are. Is that fair? Yeah. It's just the way it is. We're ugly sometimes. So that wasn't so bad, was it? I have to say that to myself every day, so don't feel like you're being singled out. Again, the point of the board, does the truth scare you that much? That's a good question. The issue the Spirit's getting at isn't just where is your confidence, like where is it, but also which confidence are you actively pursuing? In other words, don't just say, today my confidence is here. Because, see, a lot of you will deceive yourselves and say, well, right now in church, with all of this around me, in the fellowship of the Spirit, etc., my confidence is in the Lord. Yeah, but you're going to get in your car. Some of you are going to be that person who's like, I know somebody who's just so... You're going to get in your car, and all that momentum from your lifestyle is going to take you right back to the rebirth of ungodliness. And even if it gets wiped clean right now, tomorrow it's reborn. That's why I have to write blogs the way I do. That's why the reproof must go deep. No stone can be left unturned. We're going to leave that up to the religions in the world who say, come to church, don't forget to bring your checkbook, but come to church, I'll make you feel good for an hour, and then you go right back to your disgusting life. And we won't ask any questions. And I, want to, I won't pose any challenges to you. I definitely won't give you any homework. And I won't be writing any blogs that are meant to challenge you to the core. We're, not, we're going to leave all that up to the religions, okay? Is that fair? We're going to leave that up to those people. You know, the ones that you like to talk about on your way home, the ones that are in your family, the ones that are below you now because they're Catholic and you're whatever the hell you are or think you are. Do you know what I'm saying? That, that, we're going to leave that up to those jackasses. That's right, I said it. Did I say ass twice? Oh, it's three times now. Should I say it again? An ass is a donkey, right? Pervs. And they are jackasses, and you're a jackass. Good morning. You guys are like, thank God he's leaving. <laughs> leaving on a jet plane. Well, that's what I have to do. Because you guys are going to get all loose. You're going to, I'm going to come back. Scott, oh, Scott's there is so fluffy and nice and comfy. Like my shoes that I never wear to church because I want to look good. Heh <laughs> 
not where is your confidence, but also which confidence are you actively pursuing? In other words, let's just not pretend just because we're in the moment. Let's expand the analysis in our own lives to include our lifestyles. And don't just answer quickly. Remember James 1.19, quick to hear, slow to speak. Don't just answer quickly. Oh, I'm here, so I must be pursuing confidence in the Lord. But yet, just yesterday, and probably tomorrow, you'll be back to your old ways. Like a dog returns to his own vomit. 2 Peter 2.22 Here's the principle from Thursday. There's a tug of war going on. This is how we get to the truth of the matter. This is how it runs deep. Tug of war. Confidence in self depletes, disturbs, and distracts from our confidence in the Lord. Pride destroys our spiritual lives. It is an agent of death. Pride is a harbinger for double-mindedness in we believers. Jesus despises hypocrisy because that's what double-mindedness really is. It's hypocrisy. And if there's one thing we can pull from the words of our Lord is that he despised hypocrisy. You see, because think about salvation as a pattern, both proper and for believers even, being delivered during time. The opening scene is always repentance. You cannot get a hypocrite to repent. That's the problem. You can get someone who admits they're a sinner to repent, because that's a good starting spot. But a hypocrite, you can't. That's why Jesus despises hypocrisy. And some of you, on a regular basis, live in hypocrisy. Oh, you come to church regularly. Don't get me wrong. But you have an entire lifestyle outside of this little gathering that's hypocritical. And when, when, when the bald guy says something that really hits home, you go, meh. Or writes a blog, you go, Pfft. doesn't count for me. That's hypocrisy. Jesus specifically despises hypocritical love. Because those same people who go, meh, do you love Jesus? <laughs> I do. I love Jesus. Really? So he sends an under-shepherd to do his bidding for him, and you ignore him the one who's been delegated the authority to do that good work in you, and you ignore him. How do you love Jesus then? It sounds like you're a hypocrite. Romans 12, 9-10 in the Amplified, love is to be sincere and active. You get it? Active like lifestyle. <laughs> you get the visual? This must be really striking home because you guys look like deer in headlights. I'm serious. You guys look, either, either you stayed out too late last night watching your television. Not me. I was on my phone all night. Oh, I got you. Oh, my computer. Love is to be sincere and active. The real thing. Without guile, 
That means cunning, by the way. You know, premeditated stuff. You know, all that kind of stuff. And hypocrisy. Hate what is evil. Detest all ungodliness. Do not tolerate wickedness. Hold on tightly to what is good. Be devoted to one another with authentic brotherly affection. As members of one family, give preference to one another in honor. As per the blog, many of us give more honor to Hollywood idols than we do each other in this church. I'd be willing to bet if some famous actor or actress came in right now, I wouldn't exist. You'd be like, oh, oh, is that so-and-so? that even happen? Is that not a disgusting indictment on all of us? Who? This person, chances are, could care less about your so-called Lord and Savior. And you would, you would turn to them so quickly as to give them all of your attention. How does that happen? And you say you love the Lord. Let's revisit an old friend again that, when not in check, reveals hypocrisy in our own lives. Here's the baseline tenet, in other words. Go to John 14, 15. John 14, 15. How do we know we're hypocrites? Is it enough just to say we love them? What did Jesus say? I mean, shouldn't we take it from the mouth of the man himself? Yeah. What did Jesus say? John 14, 15. If you love me, you say you love me, in other words, you will keep my commandments. Yeah. You say you love me. Are you keeping my commandments? If you love me, you will. Mm -hmm. You will means just that. If you say you love him, the fruit is your obedience. So don't be a hypocrite. Because, as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not maybe, you might. You will keep my commandments. Hmm. So if you say you love him, the fruit is your obedience. It isn't just enough to hear your gums flapping, because we can look in the mirror, flap our guns, and deceive ourselves. We have to have to actually have to look at our fruit, our obedience. Are we obeying the commands of Him? We say we love Him. The Bible says, He says, if you do, if that's true, you will keep my commandments. You will obey. There you go. So how, do you, how you feel about obedience is often best discerned not by encouraging words to ourselves, because a lot of us deceive ourselves and say, oh, I love Jesus. And it's just an emotional thing because you worship your emotions, as I've taught a few months back. But our actual actions, not what we say to ourselves or even others, but our actions. Here's a perfect example that came up this past week. And it really does discern and make the distinction between freedom or bondage. 
The approach to truth dictates what you find, with emphasis on approach. That's why I have it highlighted there. The approach to truth dictates what you find. In other words, you can open up your Bible this very moment, and if your heart's not in it, you will miss the point. If your heart's not in it, you will miss the point. Because if your love and your affections in that moment, you know, you just open it up to, oh, I just want to get back to my TV show. My love and affection is for my TV show, not what's in the Bible. So if my love and affection are for a TV show, and this is just some kind of religious thing that I go through, uh, you're going to get nothing. Your heart's not in it. So you get what you deserve, you double-minded person, which is zilch. So, if you, re if you read your Bible and you remain in bondage, for example, with no change in attitude whatsoever, something is awry. It's one of the ways I know that I'm in the right mindset when I sit down with my own coffee in the morning. If I get nothing out of reading the Bible, something's wrong. For real. Something's terribly wrong doesn't matter what I read. If I'm there to fellowship with him because my love is on full display, is fully active, I will get something every single time. Hands down. If I get nothing, something's wrong. If I just read my Bible, I'm like, meh. It means my attention, my affections are somewhere else. We might be like the person we pondered on Thursday with the poorly tuned AM radio that's having worldly conversations with friends simultaneously. When we can't hear the truth, we remain in bondage. For it is the truth that shall make us free. John 8.32 Romans 10.17 So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But what if you're deaf or hard of hearing in that moment? What do you conclude? Again, the point on the board, the approach to truth dictates what you find. On Thursday, we considered the world economy for a moment. The world economy. When I use that phrase, what I mean is we live in this world. We're not of it, but we're in it. And so there's this entire economy that's propagated and led by the God of this world, who is also called the father of lies. And there is no truth in him. That's the economy that we're in. We're not of it. We don't have to abide in it, but we're definitely in it. And it has its tendrils in our lives. So we considered this world economy last time, paying particularly close attention to those things we place our faith, trust, and confidence in. We only have to consult the word of truth to find our answers. Go to Psalm 20, verse 7. Psalm 20, verse 7. If we can relate to this, then so be it. At least call, don't be a hypocrite. That's why he's doing this in us. I'm not just some mean, bald guy. Honestly, I swear. Huh. He does this to wake you up so that it goes deep. So the conviction goes deep. The reproof must go deep for it to work out. 
Psalm 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. In other words, the world economy is based on, you know, numbers. Things that the world esteems as greater. Well, greater in numbers is usually what the world esteems. Up here on the board, though. Perverse respect for worldly measurements. Proverbs 16.11 says very clearly, a just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. Think about it. Think about what Jesus said. If you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. Now, I don't know about you, but that's one heck of a goofy scale. If you can put Mount Everest on a scale with a mustard seed, and they weigh the same. In God's language, that's true. The world would be like, no, 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 no. That's a mustard seed. That's a mountain. Come on. Come on. Come on. It's 2019. Come on. But we live by faith, not by sight. What's more powerful, a mountain or a mustard seed of faith? You can answer that for yourself if you know what I'm getting at. What's a mountain? So we must be careful to disallow worldly measurements. For example, numbers or weights or whatever you might find in science. We must be careful to disallow worldly measurements to become the impetus for the respect we give. And we looked at a whole host of passages. Matthew 10, 28, Deuteronomy 21 to 4, Leviticus 26, 7 to 8, Psalm 33, 16 to 21, Isaiah 31, 1 to 3, Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. And just so you know, I read those off like that for people that don't have video. Okay. As a review, Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. Do not respect or trust numbers. For the Lord your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. You might say, well, you know, easy for you to say. I have the whole world bearing down on me this week or this month or this year. You, you, you know, you live in a cave, fine sir. If you even say fine sir, mister. You live in a cave, mister. You don't live my life. I don't. I really don't. But I, I think if we swapped lives, you might be surprised. I get it. I get it. But you know what? Here's the thing. Matthew 10, 28 in the Amplified. So does Jesus. So does Jesus. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather be afraid of him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. In other words, do not respect worldly fears. Don't be afraid that someone that's bigger or, quote, better than you is going to steal your porridge or take away your hard-earned money, or your hard-earned reputation, as now you're no longer the, the strongest kid on the block. You're no longer the prettiest girl, because you're, you're now in your 30s or 40s, and your things are starting to sag. And you're no longer this, or you're no longer that. Who cares? Are you kidding? What... 
what economy would be delivered up into, by the way? Are we supposed to be sanctified for the Lord or sanctified for the world? Whose economy are we supposed to be sanctified into? Do not respect worldly fears. Here's some more encouragement for us up here on the board. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. There's the scale. You want to know what's of real value? Not a stack of Benjis. Knowing God. That's what has real value. On God's scale of values, that has more value than anything you could put over here from the world. Let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises love and kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And again, the principle regarding world economy up here on the board, this idea of a perverse respect for worldly measurements. We must be careful to disallow worldly measurements to become the impetus for the respect we give. The following principle has been sort of tagging along in our messages for about a week or so up here on the board on things we trust. It's a counterfeit quest for truth if you reserve the right to reject it once you find it. So there's a pristine nature of the Word of God. That if we're going to consult the Word of God instead of the world, if we're going to enter into that economy, God's economy, then we have to be honest and humble about it. We have to accept what we find. If that means we look in the mirror and we're ugly, okay. Didn't realize it? Good to know. Got a big booger on my face. I was so concerned with my complexion on earth that I didn't realize I had a booger on my face spiritually. But geez, you look so good on the outside. Yeah, right. Sounds like the Pharisees, right? Whitewashed tombs. They clean the plates on the outside, but not the inside. Right? Sounds a lot like that. So it's a counterfeit quest for truth if you reserve the right to reject it once you find it. Um, case in point. The blog. Seriously. Unless you think it's not from God, it's not true, it was all a lie, then you know what you have on your lap? The truth. And if you reject it, then you're not really seeking the truth, are you? You're double-minded. That's the whole point. You don't really love the Lord the way you say you do. You're a phony. Because you don't keep His commands. You don't obey Him. You know what I'm getting at? That's what the Spirit's saying. You guys really look like you'd rather be somewhere else right now. Seriously. I think it all started with the gym pants. It was all down there, all downhill from there. I wore my best pumps, wore my, my, my muscle shirt underneath this shirt. I was all set. I was feeling good. Then I came in, and Bam! The whole thing got shot down, right? I was feeling so good about myself until you, you bald bugger. Happy trails to you. 
right? And you want to change seats with me. Ha! Oh! You should see the venom and the daggers. It really is true. It's counterfeit. You're being a phony. Don't say you love them. Don't say you're looking for the truth. When every time you find it, you go, mm, la, 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 la. Or I got, here's a perfect thing I can do. I won't read the blogs. And if the pastor asks me, I'll just say, yeah, I've been reading them, and keep it like general. But are you like two months behind? Maybe. I read them, just not every one. I read the ones with the colorful little, you know, and then once I get, oh, no, no, I don't like where this is going. Next, in the trash. Oh, look at this one. Honey, honey, look at this one. Rejoice, rejoice, hallelujah. No? Must be just me. I must have no discernment. DJ, I think this spiritual gift is a farce. It comes with zero discernment. I don't know what I'm talking about. Look at their face. Come up here and look at their faces. I'm just kidding. Right? You tell me if, if I'm telling the truth or not. You're not. It's not me at all. You don't know, you don't know me. Remember the instigating point? I'm just trying to loosen you up, by the way, because you really are a bunch of stiffs. Jesus despises hypocritical love. That's the point. You think I'm a problem? You think this dynamic here is a problem? Jesus despises hypocritical love. And you all say, if asked, I love Jesus. But he says himself, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey me. So you don't really have a weird dynamic with me. I'm just a messenger. Your dynamic, your problem is with him. But here's the beauty of all this. Isn't honesty what makes true love so grand? Isn't it? Just be honest. At least I know you love me enough to be honest. I may grimace, I may murmur, I may complain, I may not like it, but at least I know you're being honest with me, and that is a show of true love, because I know I've been in your situation, it's difficult to do what you're doing as a good friend. So I was thinking about that. Honesty exists, of course, within the sphere of God as does love and peace and righteousness. Honestly, you could say it's part of integrity, or is integrity for the most part. So it certainly does exist in the sphere of God, along with love and peace and righteousness, etc. Which means that, as with all the other grace gifts I just listed, honesty is a two-way street. Now let me explain this, so concentrate. Remember, just like love isn't transactional, Honesty isn't transactional. Just like authority orientation isn't transactional. It's not C, C, C. It's I abide in authority orientation. I, have, I abide in love. I abide in peace. It becomes me. I abide in integrity. It's who I am. Whether it's for or against me, it doesn't matter. It's who I am. Honesty is a two-way street. 
it's, it's, it's something we adopt as a um, tenant, a base tenant in our life. It's not a transactional thing. See, I'm honest. See, I'm being honest. That's cool. You were honest once today. But your motivation was wrong. That's very different than a person who abides in honesty and then just happens to be maybe upset and has to repent when they're dishonest and fail. That's a very different approach to truth, is it? Isn't it? That's the whole point. How you approach the truth makes all the difference in the world. We can't just be honest with others. We must accept honesty about ourselves. In fact, it's this latter case that must precede, and this goes back to the start of class, being honest about ourselves. You know, take the log that's in your eye out before you go, you know. That must precede all other cases. For how can a dishonest person discern anything good? If you can't get yourself situated to abide in integrity, what makes you think you're equipped to do anything beyond just your own little world, your own little sense of being? Jesus, for example, honestly assessed himself as pristine. Therefore, he is perfectly justified in assessing us honestly. That's our prototype. He had a righteousness about himself, and then he was able to say, like in John 2, I know the heart of man. I know what's going on here. So that's the prototype. Also, we might add that honesty is an expression of love. It's in the same sphere, after all. Honesty, integrity, is an expression of love. Being honest with oneself is love for self. Being honest with someone else is love for someone else. And that's the greatest command of all, right? Greater love is known than this, right? We're supposed to love not just ourselves, but others. On that note, the Spirit wanted to quell our fears regarding the impact the truth has on us. What happen, in other words, what happens when the truth hurts? What happens when we're being loved and it hurts? Proverbs 10, 12, Part B, but love covers all transgressions. Okay, so you're making me look in the mirror. I'm ugly, okay? I'm ugly. This is painful. I'm ugly. Good, but I love you. So can we move on? Perfect. I love you. Can we move on? I always get a kick out of that, especially with, you know how it is, with loved ones in your own life, like in an earthly sense. When you know something about someone and you're just kind of hanging around waiting for them to admit it themselves, and then they finally admit it, and you're like, I already knew. I've just been waiting for you to admit it yourself so we could move on. I love you. I knew that before. Imagine that. You didn't just reveal something catastrophic to me. I already knew. Oh, you're a jackass. I already knew. Right? You got boogers all over your face. I already knew. But I love you. And I loved you then. And I was there. And I love you now. After you've admitted it. Before you admitted it. After you admitted it. Before you even recognize that you were this kind of a sinner, Jesus Christ died on the cross. 
knowing who you are. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's good to reconcile with truth. Jesus personified these two principles. And the proof is that he chose to lay down his life for sinners. Up here on the board, John 10, 17 to 18. The proof that he loves us. And he saw all our warts and our boogers and all that stuff long before we did even. And he chose just the same. John 10, 17 to 18, part A. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Now who would do that? Who would do that, other than someone who loves us enough to do it? Jesus is the best friend we'll ever know. It's why he's able to say the following. Go to John 15, verse 8. John 15, verse 8. He's the best friend. John 15, 8. My Father, now remember the sphere that He abides in, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. Don't just gum flap. Bear fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Anyone could call themselves a disciple, but Jesus was calling out fruit and proof. That you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. That's what he wants for you. This is my commandment, that you love one another. That's another way of saying, abide in the sphere of love. That you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus personified this kind of sacrificial love. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So there's a picture of our perfect friend. He just laid it all out. He said, this is, what it's, this is what it means to be a perfect friend. I chose to lay down my life for you. Greater love is no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. I am the good shepherd. You can go on and on. And on. He, he's the, the pinnacle 
of friendship. And you see it right there in John 15. It's a picture of our perfect friend. So, this begs the question. When we consider other friends, quote-unquote, in our lives. We look at Jesus and we say, okay, so if this is the perfect friend, if this is a picture of the perfect friend, okay, what about my other friends? What about the idea of friendship in general? How about the two-way street-ness, made that up, of friendship? And that was something we've been dragging with us now for about a week and a half. Two questions up here on the board. Do we seek friends that lie to us? Have our friends sought us because we've lied to them? What do the rest of our friends look like? And do we actually prefer those that lie to us? And do they prefer us when we lie to them? In other words, do we shift economies? Does the currency move from truth to lies? Which one are we in? And a lot of that has to do with what we started off class with. Well, where are your affections? Where's your confidence? Because you talk a big game, but your lifestyle leads you to a worldly economy every single day. So what you're saying is with your fruit is you actually love this economy more than the godly one. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, his commandments are over here. Remember, I like that analogy that the Spirit gave us. Commandments aren't to look to be looked at like adolescents look at it. Commandments are lights on a path back to him. They're beautiful. What kind of friends do we want? We want truth or lies. Based on the contents of this week's blog, The Entertainment Trap, for some of you, your best friends are fictional media characters. Did it ever strike you as odd? You ever watch the old films of like the Beatles and there's literally young ladies passing out in the audience? Or crying? What are you crying about? You don't even know these jackasses. You don't even know anything about them. They play guitars and a drum and sing. What the heck is wrong with people where you pass out? It's a complete indictment. Some people's best friends are fictional characters. These characters lie to you. The God of this world has devised an entire economy around lies. Entertainers are like poster children for Satan. Go to John 8.44. John 8.44. Entertainers are like poster children for Satan. John 8.44. I, I would argue that a lot of people in this world, they get the vast majority of their quote-unquote intimacy from a screen. They relate to people that they don't know and they fantasize about actually knowing them. They watch certain movies over and over or they listen to certain records over and over or they read certain books even 
over and over because the whole thing, the whole thing is fantastical. And so they relate, their, their most intimate relationships are with people that don't actually exist. And you might say, well, uh, Tom Cruise exists. Yeah, he does, but he's not the guy in Mission Impossible. And he's not Maverick. He's weird, to be honest. He's into the Dianetics crap, right? He's a berserko. But he's a good actor. Got to give him that. He's a good actor, whatever the heck that means. And some people would rather cling to that, to bond with something fictitious. And then here we have Jesus, the realest friend in the history of friends, and we trade him in for something produced by the God of this world. John 8, 44. Entertainers are like poster children for Satan. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because, here it is, there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If you know anything about your pre-salvation condition, there it is. That's the very best you've got. If, you don't, if you're not made new, born again, a new creature, this is what you got to your account. You're basically a stinking liar, a depraved individual. And how berserk is it when you really think about it? For someone who claims to be saved, someone who claims to be in love with Jesus Christ, to put someone like that on a pedestal. Oh, but it's... Oh, what's her name? It's T. Swiffy. They still call her that? I'm probably out by a couple of years. They change their handles quite often. It's Taylor Swift, though. So? Oh, it's so-and-so, and they're just so adorable. It's the Jonas Brothers. Ooh. <laughs> Melissa, I know. You wear the Jonas shirt on, on weekdays. I know. She acts like we don't notice. Either that or the Bee Gees. It's like Bee Gees. <laughs> this is what you're left with. How do you befriend that thing? The Bible literally says you can't be friends with that person. It's not going to work out. The tricky part is that Satan's agents, and there are many children of Satan, will disguise themselves. They put on a good... Isn't that Hollywood? Isn't that what acting actually is, if not a disguise? Let me professionally pretend to be someone else. Literally, that's what it means. I'm going to pretend to be someone else. And you all, morons, are going to pay me to be really good at it. And then you're so stupid that you're going to idolize me and pay me millions of dollars and then elect me into politics, which is bizarre. Because I'm famous. And you're going to pretend, you're, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be deceived into thinking that what I have to say on anything other than acting is important. You don't believe me? Come on, people. Wake up. Up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 to 15. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. No one gets away with it. 
But they might say, I'll be your friend. And you're like, really? Because I notice you're really tall and handsome and smart and rich. I like that in you. I like that about you. My flesh is, you know, all peaked. Mm-hmm. I'll be on the board. Here's the instigating point. Who are friends? Do we seek friends that lie to us? Have our friends sought us because we've lied to them? What economy do we find ourselves into? Or in, excuse me. And again, we're not just taking snapshots. We're looking at tomorrow. We're looking at a lifestyle. I'm going to close here in a moment. Some of you might feel convicted as to why Satan's economy has been so successful in your life. Well, here's the answer. I know this is the cold, hard truth. People would rather have friends that lie to them. You've chose that life. You've chose that economy. You've actively chose that thing to go back to the vomit. To play a little game and come in your Sunday best, not your gym shorts and your gym pants and your comfy hats and t-shirts. Come in your Sunday best, put on a show, and then go right back to your lifestyle. Is that not literally the definition of double life? Of dip sukkahs? And some of you are like, I don't do that. Well, that's between you and the Lord. Somebody in here does it because I'm teaching it, so it's necessary. But I'd be willing to bet every single soul in here does it to some degree. People would rather have friends that lie to them. To whatever degree you fall into that bucket, to that same degree, you do not want Christ as your friend. Which is tantamount to you admitting that you don't really want to hear the truth. And here's where we ended a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to have to end here this morning, up here on the board. Why all this talk about reading your Bible? It's a test. Proverbs 4.7. Do you want to know the truth or not? Proverbs 4.7 says, The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. What did God say was so valuable? Understand me. Did we not read that earlier? This is what is so valuable. Understanding me. Not how to navigate or circumnavigate or whatever navigate the world economy. Because God knows that's a challenge in of itself. Whether you're in business or whatever your lot in life is. Not to spend all your time trying to understand and navigate that waste of time. But understanding God. Do you want to know the truth or not? The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. With all that, you get understanding. So I'll close with this. Some of you, if you're honest about that question, do you want to know the truth or not, have to answer no, at least to some degree. You have to say, no, I don't want the truth because it causes too much turmoil in my soul. What's more accurate is to say that it causes your flesh too much consternation. And we talked about grace in the past here. For example, the truth about grace is disturbing to most so-called Christians I know. Why? 
because most of these folks are living a lie and they actually prefer it. They've got some version of God, some perverted version of God, that he's like Santa Claus. And I think maybe that's why Santa Claus is so popular even among Christians. Because he's like a perverted God who just, you know, hands out presents. Um, most Christians I know think of God's grace as a goodies bag. Not all. But most I know just think of God's grace as something that's accommodating to the human flesh. Like a goodies bag. God just walks around with a little, you know, one of those little plastic pumpkins from uh, Halloween. Hey, go ahead, grab, grab two. Yeah, trick or treat. That's God's job, by the way, just to walk around with a goodies bag. So you can just reach your filthy hand in and pull out whatever you want. And then turn your back on him when you don't feel like, you know, being around him. Being around your best friend. Most Christians I know think of God's grace as a goodies bag, something to be reached into at whatever whimsical time suits them. And here's where I'll end, I promise. There's no place in that economy. There's no place for the sovereignty of God in this lie. There's no place for God's grace as a function of His will. It's always called upon at the will of the creature. And there's no place for real growth because God's grace has been crippled by the sensibilities of man. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the cold hard truth about ourselves, about this world that we live in, about this perverted economy based on the currency of lies rather than the truth that sets us free. It stings at times. Our conscience convicts us. But we thank you for your spirit and his ministry in our lives and for setting us straight. We just pray that we're able to cling to these things with your help as we take them back to our homes and then out to a lost and dying world, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.